This is MPB News. Hi, this is Karen Brown. Thanks for checking out the Mississippi Edition podcast. If you like what you hear, click subscribe, hit like, or leave us a comment if your app has that feature. Then find other MPB podcasts by searching MPB Think Radio on your favorite podcasting platform. Thanks. Good morning. It's 8.30 on Friday, August 21st. I'm Karen Brown, and this is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. On today's show... I'd still rather be in the SEC with no tailgates than the Pac-12 or the Big Ten with no football. The governor signs an executive order outlining attendance restrictions for college football games. Then the Democratic National Convention came to a close last night. We reflect on the historic event with some of Mississippi's participants. Plus, in celebration of the 19th Amendment, a conversation with the League of Women Voters on the struggle for suffrage. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. College football season in Mississippi is back, but this fall is going to look much different. While the state's flagship programs are expected to play, it will be in front of significantly reduced crowds due to restrictions put in place by Governor Tate Reeves. Reeves addressed his latest executive order in a briefing yesterday. It's something that's been polarizing around the country. Some conferences have opted not to make any effort to play. Some states have not yet put out their plans. This is an effort which we worked closely with the universities on to set a floor. We took their joint recommendations, and with a little bit of work, we put this plan together. This is the minimum that each school is required to do in their college stadiums this fall to keep our players and our spectators safe while allowing college football to occur. First, and probably most importantly, seating capacity in the bowl area will be limited to a maximum of 25% if and only if schools can ensure a minimum of six feet of social distancing between people who are not in the same household. Masks will be required whenever you're walking around, whenever you're entering, or when you're exiting the stadium, basically at all times unless you're sitting in your seat away from everyone else. And it will be highly recommended that even if you are sitting in your seat, that you continue to wear a mask when at a ballgame. The order also puts limits on elevators and requires masks to be worn in the stadium unless seated. Reeves admits the restrictions might not be popular with some residents, but he says he prefers football with limited attendance over the alternative solutions of other power conferences. I know this will not be popular. It's no fun. And I'll miss them terribly myself. But it's better than other states prohibiting football altogether. I'd still rather be in the SEC with no tailgates than the Pac-12 or the Big Ten with no football. I spent the afternoon talking about these restrictions and other measures to prevent the spread on college campuses with our university leaders as well as our local leaders in our college towns. We know that we've got a lot of work to do there. I know that one of Dr. Dobbs' greatest fears heading into the fall, college students partying and ignoring the risk of the virus. It's something that we will have to be constantly working on over the course of the next few months. If you have kids in college, reach out to them. Tell them to please be careful. 
Tell them to not be partying because that's where so much of the spread has occurred throughout the summer. Our 18 to 29 demographic has between 17 and 18,000 cases now in our state. They're one and a half times larger than any other demographic in the state. So please talk to them about being smart, about being healthy, and about protecting themselves, which ultimately will help protect their moms, their dads, their grandmoms, and their granddads. All but three Mississippi colleges and universities have elected to suspend fall sports, the earliest of which included SWAC member institutions in July. Reeves became vocal in his support for college football when power conferences, including the SEC, contemplated options for their fall sports. Reeves' restrictions on the game day experience come as the Department of Health is investigating two known outbreaks on college campuses. Epidemiologist Dr. Paul Byers says social activities off campus are leading to these outbreaks. It's going to the bars and restaurants. It's hanging out with friends. Um, And it's not continuing to do those things like masking and social distancing. And again, I would encourage the college students that one of our our prime goals to go to college is to receive an education. I remember being 20. It's been a long time ago. Um, But, you know, I I would urge them, if we want to be serious about this, that we have to not only be serious about um, those appropriate actions on campus when we're in class, but we need to do that when we're off campus as well. In light of these investigations, MPB's Ashley Norwood reports on how schools are responding to concerns over COVID-19. It's noon, and the ensemble class at Jackson State University is warming up their instruments. (laughs) Stephanie Hodges plays the viola. She's a freshman music major from Missouri. It was not my first choice to be here, but because I am a music major, I have to be here to go to orchestra and get the information that I need. But at the same time, like I'm still kind of concerned because I do see people not taking precautions, and it just worries me. There are only two students in the classroom, and Hodges says that makes her feel better about in-person learning. Both of them are wearing masks and playing their instrument from opposite sides of a large classroom. Because of the coronavirus, school officials are restricting campus visits. This means Hodge's family won't be able to travel from Missouri for her first college recital. It's a little bit disappointing. My family's been talking about it for a while, like me going to college majoring in music education and them coming to see like my performances and things like that, and that not really being able to happen like in person. But also at the same time, they still can't hear me. There's still opportunities for them to hear me. Colleges and universities in Mississippi are offering a range of methods to deliver instruction, such as remote learning, online classes, in-person or hybrid. Social distancing markers outline classrooms and dining halls. And schools have spent millions installing plexiglass barriers, hand sanitizer, and digital temperature check stations across their campuses. University presidents say they're confident in their plans to limit spread on campus, but it's the off-campus activity that's driving their concerns. So many of our students live off campus, as it's true, 
with most universities than on campus. That's Chancellor Glenn Boyce at the University of Mississippi in Oxford. Recently, the school reported one employee and 15 student athletes testing positive for COVID-19. How they control their behavior and what they do off campus in terms of congregating are things that uh, almost are beyond our control, with the exception of doing everything we can to uh, try to be redundant about our informing students and communicating to students the importance of things like masking, the importance of sanitizing your hands, the importance of social distancing. If a student tests positive for a coronavirus on campus, they're immediately isolated and instructed to quarantine for 14 days. Schools have reserved a number of dorm rooms specifically for quarantine. Students can continue with class online and to-go meals from the cafeteria are dropped off at their doorstep. Contact tracers will notify people who have come into close contact with a positive case and instruct them to get tested and isolate until their results are confirmed. Okay, everybody, take a deep breath and let it out. In a video message, Mississippi University for Women President Nora Miller tries to calm her campus community. More than 70 students are in isolation after seven COVID-19 cases were reported on the campus in Columbus. Relax, but don't relax the vigilance. We can beat this virus if we all do our part. Outbreaks have also been reported at Mississippi College in Clinton and Northeast Community College in Boonville. At what point during an outbreak should campuses reconsider residential in-person learning? University leaders say there's no definitive answer. Ashley Norwood, MPB News. Coming up, the Democratic National Convention came to a close last night. We reflect on the historic event with some of Mississippi's participants. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. Hi, I'm Walt Grayson. You can now listen to the wild, weird, and wonderful stories of Mississippi with Mile Marker. The first question that we get when someone comes in is, how is the Ulysses S. Grant Presidential Library in Mississippi? Join me as we hit the roads of Mississippi on Mile Marker. We have every letter Grant ever wrote and every letter ever written to him. You can listen by going to mpbonline.org slash radio or by using your favorite podcasting app, Mile Marker, a Mississippi Roads podcast. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. I'm Karen Brown. Mississippi delegates to the Democratic National Convention are applauding the four-day virtual event, which ended last night with Joe Biden accepting the presidential nomination. His running mate, Kamala Harris, is the first African-American and Asian-American woman to be nominated vice president. Hines County Administrator Jennifer Riley Collins, a delegate, tells our Desiree Frazier she was moved by candidate Biden's message. I appreciated um, that he framed it in uh, the words of love, hope, and light, because this this country seems to be um, filled with hate, despair, and darkness. And so um, just like uh, President Obama did when he ran and encouraged this country uh, having the audacity of hope, uh, Vice President Biden, I, I think his speech is restoring hope, uh, is restoring our um, quest for love and for light. So I'm excited. Your thoughts on the convention overall? I mean, it's four days, first time it was done virtually. And I think uh, the Democratic Party 
uh, pulled this uh, virtual convention off in an amazing way. Um, I, I'm, I am proud that we led uh, in doing this. I am even more proud that the convention was led by our own Congressman Benny Thompson um, and that Mississippi was reflected on the screen every night. I, I participated virtually with other delegates from across the southern region. Um, we were having these delegation uh, uh, viewings of the speeches across the last four evenings. And so the camaraderie um, was was very present and felt. Uh, the on-screen uh, performances uh, made you feel like you were in the room. Um, and so I, I, I'm pleased. And is there a new energy among the party? I, I think there is a new energy amongst the party. Um, we, in fact, last night um, participated in a delegates call. Uh, it's uh, a, a little pre-convention before um, the national convention last night, and many of the delegates were on call with Mike Espy and, you know, the, the support for this candidate was palatable. Uh, I think we are all saying it is time to engage people over politics, and I think the party's ready to move forward. Riley the state Collins. of Mississippi needs us to move forward. Okay. Jennifer Riley Collins, Mississippi delegate with the Democratic Party, thank you so much for your time. You're very welcome. Thank you for having me. Mississippi's delegates were pledged Tuesday night from the Benny Thompson Auditorium on the campus of Tougaloo College. College President Dr. Carmen Walters says it was a way to showcase one of Mississippi's oldest HBCUs while joining a message of unity. It's just such an honor to have the exposure for our college. We're a small college in Mississippi. Tougaloo is a great historic institution that has done so much uh, good work, and we loved having that exposure uh, on that stage. So that was just awesome for us. Would you share your thoughts on the convention overall, Monday through Thursday, uh, testimonies, uh, speeches from a real cross-range of America? Your thoughts on that? Well, I think they are doing an excellent job with this. Uh, no one has been through anything like this before. Uh, and so for them to to turn their entire plan to a digital platform and still give you that feeling of, I know uh, what you're thinking and what you're feeling, even though you're in another state, you're in another city, uh, it was just really, really moving to me. Certain parts brought me to tears uh, with certain testimonials, looking at all the topics that they have um, they have touched and the inclusiveness of the everyday people that are living and working in America. Um, on, on another um, issue, you mentioned the uh, plight of HBCUs and the challenges and funding. The coronavirus pandemic, how has it affected Tougaloo College and other HBCUs? Well, I think we are suffering uh, greatly through the pandemic. We are surviving because that is what we do. 
uh, we have had to struggle for many, many years with lack of funding, lack of support, lack of resources. The problem with us is we've done that so well, people think, oh, they don't need anything because they're doing it. Um, and, and that's not what we want folks to know. We want them to know that we need your dollars. We need your scholarship dollars. We need your dollars for infrastructure and technology. So the pandemic definitely has affected us. I think most uh, colleges, universities, whether they're PWIs or HBCUs or minority-serving institutions, we all are, are affected. And I think with HBCUs, because we already had challenges fiscally, we are affected even more. My enrollment uh, for fall is down uh, about 11%. As a tuition-driven institution, that 11% is a big hit. So um, the pandemic has been a multiplier to multiply the problems. Uh, that we we are experiencing, even though the pandemic uh, is upon us, Tugalu is a healthy institution, a very thriving institution, uh, really engaged with the students, its commun- community, faculty, and staff. We are very proud to be a part of the Democratic National Convention to bring national notoriety to Tugalu. And um, we are just grateful to be a part of this great community where we can serve our students freely and with our beliefs. Dr. Walters, president of Tougaloo College, thank you so much for your time and speaking with us. Oh, you are welcome. Coming up in celebration of the 19th Amendment, a conversation with the League of Women Voters on the struggle for suffrage. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. Hey, this is Malcolm White. I'm one of the hosts of the Mississippi Arts Hour, the arts interview show on Think Radio. Every week we talk with visual artists, musicians, as well as people who help bring the arts to their communities. We hear about how each artist learned their craft and get some insight into their creative process. You can hear the Arts Hour every Sunday at 5 p.m. or listen anytime by subscribing to the show through your favorite podcast app. This is Mississippi Edition. I'm Karen Brown. This week marks the 100th anniversary of the 19th Amendment, securing the right to vote for American women. Carol Anderson is co-president of the Mississippi League of Women Voters. She shares the story of the long struggle for suffrage and how the fight to get voters to the polls continues. You could say suffrage, um, really, it goes back to, you know, even the, the, the Civil War. Um, you know, thinking of um, African American women in our state, uh, as soon as they were free, they were beginning to imagine um, having access to all the rights of citizenship, including voting. So you could really say it went back to uh, emancipation. When I think of women's suffrage, I immediately think of Susan B. Anthony and Elizabeth Cady Stanton. Were they the two leaders, in a sense, or two among many? I think they were two among many. I mean, there was a very active suffrage movement in the U.K. at the same time, and um, those women were providing um, examples and and guidance and and even full-on training to the women in the United States who eventually um, got the suffrage movement rolling here. So uh, I think it... 
we tend in the United States to think of women's suffrage as a U.S. issue, and yes, it was, but it's an international issue. And so um, I would say those, of course, are names that stand out, but there were uh, a number of women at work on both sides of the issue. (laughs) You say women on both sides. Talk about some of the conflict there. Uh, The women who didn't want the right to vote, were they... Were their husbands or men in their lives, uh, did they have an influence there? Um, sure. Uh, they're the antis, and I don't mean A-U-N-T-I-E, <laughs> the anti-suffrage movement women. Um, I think they were part of a mindset in, in America that women had a particular role. They were the keepers of the home, the, um, the, the raisers of the children, uh, they had a, a particular place, and I think there was a um, there were plenty of women who agreed with that mindset and imagined that if women began voting and becoming politically active, then that home life would suffer. Were there men who supported the suffrage movement among women? There were men, and um, they uh, some were more outspoken than others. Some came to be convinced, and in fact. Um, it took men, of course, to vote on the 19th Amendment itself. So, What was that vote? The 36th state to ratify the 19th Amendment was Tennessee. At that time, it took 36 states to ratify uh, an amendment. And then, of course, Mississippi did not, <laughs> we did not ratify the 19th Amendment here until uh, 1984, I think. 1984? Yes. There are a number of things we didn't ratify until much later, and that was just one of them. Following the passage of the 19th Amendment, was everything hunky-dory? Or was there, did women just go to the polls and it was all great and fine? No, of course it wasn't, and not all women got to go to the polls in 1920 anyway. <laughs> African-American women still weren't going to the polls. Native American women still weren't going to the polls. I mean, the suffrage movement went on. And in some ways, you might say the suffrage movement is still going on. Um, The, you know, getting people full access to the polls is an ongoing issue, uh, an ongoing battle. But so certainly, no, it was not hunky-dory. There was still work to be done and great great challenges to overcome and uh, so women just kept on working Uh, African American particularly kept on working Fannie Lou Hamer and and leaders like that speaking of uh, things that don't always go smoothly I want to move ahead to the year 2020 with an election approaching and there is or there have been concerns expressed from both sides of the aisle about the integrity of the voting process. Does the League of Women Voters have a stance on that? The primary concern we have is is getting people to the polls. Um, we have confidence in um, mail-in voting. We are not concerned that that would um, that there would be a loss of integrity to the, the election if we used more mail-in. But right now what we're really concerned about is COVID and people's fear of getting out to vote, um, the potential loss of poll workers who are not comfortable working in a public uh, uh, voting situation. And um, in this state, um, it's, it's a little bit hard to vote absentee. So lot, we have five local leagues in our state. Um, 
And each of those leagues is working on a communications message for how to get to the polls, how to navigate absentee voting, um, how to become a poll worker if they're willing, because we fear there may be um, a, a shortage of poll workers. Well, we hope to hear more from the League of Women Voters, and I thank you so much. Carol Anderson is the Assistant Director of the Mississippi Humanities Council and Co-President of the League of Women Voters of Mississippi. Thank you, Carol. Sure thing. Glad to do it. This has been Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. Thanks for listening to the Mississippi Edition podcast from MPB News and MPB Think Radio. Don't forget to subscribe if you haven't already. And if your app lets you, leave a comment or review. We really do appreciate it. Remember, you can always get in touch with MPB News on Facebook and Twitter. And fresh episodes of the podcast are posted every weekday morning. I'm Karen Brown. Thanks for listening. This is Mississippi Edition from MPB Think Radio.